This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. Uh, this evening I have the immense pleasure of being joined by the goat, Ash Sarka. Ash, how are we? I like to think of us as a pair of AA batteries, Aaron, just ready to power up a show. It's a very powerful uh, metaphor. I, I, I would expect precisely that from an English student, uh, and of course uh, a graduate student too. Uh, coming up later tonight, updates on the situation in Gaza as Israel reportedly offer a deal to Hamas. And we'll be discussing the UK economy with Jeremy Hunt set to offer tax cuts ahead of the next general election. How unlike a Tory. Before we start, a quick notice. I love sharing a little bit of good news. Uh, we have a new position here at Navarra Media. Craig Gent is now our North of England editor. He'll be based in our office in Leeds, and you'll see more work from him appearing soon on navarramedia.com. If you want to read more about that new role and what Craig will be doing, then check out the link in the YouTube description below. So good to be sharing that kind of good news, of course, all thanks to our brilliant supporters. Britain and the US have jointly bombed Yemen for the second time. Last night, British fighter jets were deployed from a UK military base in Cyprus. According to the MOD, precision-guided bombs were used to strike multiple sites across Sunda, Yemen's capital. US officials have also said that they launched Tomahawk missiles from submarines in the Red Sea, while fighter jets took off from warships stationed there too. Those same officials told NPR that their targets were Houthi missile storage sites, drones, and launchers. Australia, Bahrain, Canada, and the Netherlands all provided operational support. This was how Rishi Sunak defended the fresh attacks in Parliament earlier today. Last week, I gave the House our initial assessment of the first wave of strikes. Since then, we have seen further evidence that they were successful in degrading the Houthis' military capability. Last night, we hit two military sites just north of Sana'a, each containing multiple specific targets, which the Houthis used to support their attacks on shipping. And Mr. Speaker, I want to be very clear. We are not seeking a confrontation. We urge the Houthis and those who enable them to stop these illegal and unacceptable attacks. But if necessary, the United Kingdom will not hesitate to respond again in self-defense. We cannot stand by and allow these attacks to go unchallenged. Inaction is also a choice. You might find self-defense a rather strange argument for bombing a country which is approximately 6,000 kilometers from London. You might also find it strange that, once again, the British government has carried out a military raid without parliamentary approval. While this is only the second time that Britain and the US have collaborated in bombing Yemen, it marks the eighth time for the US since January 12th. And now, since they began in November, there's been no denying Houthi attacks on ships trying to pass through the Red Sea have had a dramatic impact on global trade. In the last month alone, maritime traffic in the region has dropped by 22%. And the Houthis say they're disrupting Red Sea traffic to stop Israel's war in Gaza. They began by targeting only ships linked to or heading to Israel. And since the beginning of the UK and US's attacks on them and its involvement, those attacks have branched out to ships, mostly military, associated with those two countries as well. 
this isn't the first time the US and UK have worked together to attack Yemen. In Parliament, former Defence Select Committee Chair Tobias Elwood asked Rishi Sunak this. Would the Prime Minister agree our attention on Yemen should not just include removing the immediate threat in the Red Sea, but a fresh, more cognitive approach to resolving the longer-term governance issues in this troubled country, or the threat will remain? Prime Minister. Well, I thank my honourable friend for his uh, previous efforts. Um, as he knows, we're a penholder on Yemen in the UN, and we continue to use our diplomatic and political influence to support UN efforts to bring about that lasting peace to Yemen through an inclusive political settlement. And the British people can also be very proud of what we're doing to support the Yemeni people from a humanitarian perspective. We've committed over a billion pounds in aid since the conflict uh, began in 2014. And this year, we will be, I believe, the fourth or fifth largest donor to the UN's appeal. As Sunak says there, the UK has given about a billion pounds in aid to Yemen since 2014. But why does the country need that aid? Well, in 2014, a civil war in the country saw the Houthis oust the Western-backed government. A year later... A coalition led by Saudi Arabia and the UAE began a bombing campaign against the country. Armed by British and American arms manufacturers, it lasted eight relentless years. That prolonged assault led to widespread famine, with UNICEF describing it as, quote, a living hell for children. And according to the UN, 70% of all the casualties of that war were children. Remember, Yemen has an average age of around 18. And the billion pounds in aid that Britain has sent to Yemen to patch up the humanitarian disaster it helped to create is nothing compared to the profits that British arms companies made from that war. A 2019 Oxfam report found that the total value of arms sold to the coalition of the Saudis, UAE and so on by British manufacturers between 2015 and 2019 was £6.2 billion. 6.2 billion. At the time, it was more than eight times the 770 million pounds given to Yemen in British aid. Small change by comparison. And remember, this is a conflict which saw over 300,000 people die. Now, as for US involvement in that war, the BBC reports that the UAE funded political assassinations in Yemen during the conflict. And who were the assassins? employees of a US-based security company called Spear Operations Group. Uh, this is from a BBC Arabic investigation. In 2015, the UAE hired a private US military firm called Spear Operations Group. Their mission was to carry out assassinations in Yemen. Isaac Gilmore, a former Navy SEAL, was one of several Americans who took part in covert operations. I think I had about a day's notice to say, you know, am I in or am I out? And I'll hop on a flight into Abu Dhabi. We met with the appropriate bodies within the UAE government at the officers club on the Emirati army base. The pitch was to put pressure on ISIS and Al-Qaeda in the state of Yemen and make sure that it didn't become another chaotic hub of terrorist activity, especially with the proximity to the Horn of Africa. Who gave you the targets? We received the target intelligence from the UAE government. How did you receive them? In intelligence packets. And one of them was Ansaf Mayo? Yes. Ansaf Mayo was the leader of one of the biggest political organizations in Yemen. He has no known links to terrorism and has taken part in a UN peace process. On the day Isaac and his team went to kill him, he'd left his office earlier than usual. It saved his life. 
What shocked me most is that they sent foreign mercenaries to kill us in our own country. What moral and legal justification could there be to cross the ocean to kill me in Aden? Why? What am I guilty of? Ansaf's party, Al-Islah or Reform Party, has policies inspired by the Muslim Brotherhood, a popular Islamist movement which is banned in several countries, including the UAE, where it's seen as a threat to the royal family. But the US has never classified the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. We put a list of questions about Spear Group's activities in Yemen to the US State Department and the Department of Defense, who declined to comment. Just extraordinary. You have the UK and the US pitching themselves as defenders rather than offenders. This is the international rules-based system, extrajudicial killings, mercenaries, and sending aid while making billions more in arms exports. Ash, let's play devil's advocate a little bit here. Some say it's naive to think the Houthis would stop what they're presently doing with this quasi-blockade. Simply if there was a ceasefire in Gaza, they're doing it for other reasons, national prestige, political capital, etc., 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 What's your take on that? Well, the first thing is that the Houthis' demands have been very much limited to an ending of the siege on Gaza. So if there was a broader context that was central to whether or not they would cease participating in actions on the Red Sea, you'd be surprised that that's not reflected more in the demands. Now, I'm not saying that things like political prestige, um, building links with Islamist movements across the region isn't a part of it, but I'm saying that I don't think that um, there's a reason to suggest that they weren't sincere, particularly at the early stages of their operations and saying, well, we'll stop attacking boarding ships in the Red Sea if Israel lifts its conditions of siege on Gaza. I don't think there was any reason to doubt that. The reason why there is now a reason to doubt that is because the US and the UK have been making incursions into Yemeni territorial sovereignty and bombing what they say are Houthi targets in Yemen itself around the capital of Sana'a. So that would be a reason to think that even if there is a stable, you know, permanent, permanent in terms of Israel, uh, ceasefire in Gaza, that that might not be enough to stop Houthis using what international leverage they have, which is disrupting shipping in the Red Sea in order to, you know, to borrow a term that's very popular amongst the UK military establishment to deter Uh, further incursions into Yemeni territorial sovereignty. And I think that this was always the the big, howling, gaping strategic flaw in embarking on this very open-ended military attack within the borders of Yemen itself. You're saying that you want to deter the Houthis. What you're doing is you're creating more incentives, not least the fact that if you attack the country of Yemen, there will also be a huge groundswell of support for further retaliation by the Houthis. They've got to preserve a revolutionary government, which is you know, sometimes a difficult thing to do, particularly when you consider the conditions of civil war, war and external threat. Um, you, you're not taking away reasons for Houthis to do what's 
been very effective so far and almost completely disrupt uh, Red Sea shipping by, you know, through relatively little outlay. They can do what they do with some boats, uh, with the equivalent of Houthi special forces, I guess, and a helicopter. Uh, that's not, that doesn't take much. So I don't think that any of what the UK or the US has done so far will actually deter the Houthis. What you're doing is you're giving them more reason to do what they've already been doing or even to escalate into uh, attacks on Saudi Arabian oil infrastructure, which we know they did during the period of the Saudi-UAE-backed bombardment of Yemen up until 2022. Yeah, I think that's so key, Ash. You know, you've got a lot of major actors um, who are not endorsing these attacks by the US-UK. You've got Saudi Arabia. I think key for me, actually, is Oman. Um, Oman is like a, a UK client state, right? It, you know, the, it's it's the, it's political leadership. It, I think the guy went to, like, Sandhurst. Um, but they're not getting embroiled in this. The Saudis, it's literally their neighborhood. They had this very long, protracted war with Yemen. They're not endorsing this. So I find it strange that you've got these two local countries, very close, tight connections to the West, not getting behind it. Spain, France, Italy, not getting behind it. But apparently it's just common sense. Why wouldn't you support it? If you don't support it, you must be a terrorist apologist. Well, I've been Salman, the guy who was helping bomb these people for so long. Um, uh, yeah, the, the political logic of it, I mean, we can we can probably park for one moment, but I would say as well, well, how do we know they would stop if there's a ceasefire? Let's try it. Let's try it. Then if they don't stop, we can say it's crap. It's garbage. They don't mean it. But you don't know until you try something. The kind of common sense and logic that an eight-year-old would understand, but which apparently is entirely absent in, in British political life. Then finally, this idea that, oh, we have to you know, maintain global economic trade flows. I agree with, by the way. I think it's bad if you have sea lanes being shut down. I think it's, it, it's bad that you have people in maritime, commercial maritime industries potentially having their safety jeopardized. Of course it's bad. What do you think sanctions are? Oh, we can't disrupt the free flow of global capital. And what do you think sanctions are? When you remove Russia from SWIFT, what do you think that is? That is this times 100,000. Or the sanctions on Iran, that is this times 100,000. What you're saying is, well, we can see um, industry and enterprise inhibited. We can see major blocks on the global flow of goods, services, and capital, but on our terms. Only, only we can do it. Nobody else can do it. And what the Yemenis say is, they appeal, by the way, to international law when they claim that actually nation states have the right to try and stop genocide when they encounter it. That's their argument. I'm not saying <laughs> international law, I'm not saying it's a correct or robust argument, but it's a coherent argument. Its premises make sense. They're enacting something which is kind of analogous to what the US and, and various other powers do to the likes of Iran, North Korea, Russia, Venezuela. Um, in a different way, it's dangerous, uh, but it's a logic and it's an ambition which, if it was somebody else, no, the US has absolutely bombed places to stop a genocide, right? Pointing to the exact same uh, principles of international law. So who knows? Uh, my views on it are that it's complete stupidity and that the history of the last 20 years in this part of the world has been about unintended consequences. Invade Iraq, you make Iran stronger. Uh, the Saudis bomb Yemen, you make Iran stronger. You get the growth of ISIS in Iraq and Syria. So God knows what will come from this. But apparently, like, you know, even after all that, 
less than three years after falling out from Afghanistan, our political elite still don't understand the idea of unintended consequences. If you want to support our work, by the way, go to navarromedia.com slash support. We're here every night at 6pm. We do podcasts, articles, uh, more besides too. Social first stuff. We're everywhere. Thanks to you. Next story. Israel has suffered its highest number of military casualties since the war in Gaza began 109 days ago, with 24 Israeli soldiers killed on Monday. This was reportedly the moment when 21 Israeli reservists were killed. They'd planted demolition explosives in two buildings in central Gaza when the explosion happened. IDS spokesperson Daniel Hagari gave these details. According to what we know at the moment, at around 4 o'clock, an RPG missile was apparently fired by terrorists, a tank that was securing the forces. At the same time, there was an explosion of two two-story buildings. The buildings collapsed as a result of the explosion, while most of the forces were inside them, in and near them. The buildings apparently exploded as a result of mines that our forces planted in them, in preparation for the process of blowing up the buildings and the terrorist infrastructure. At the same time an explosion occurred, Hagari is very careful there not to characterize the explosions as the result of actions by Hamas. But the Israeli media has been more blunt. This was how the Jerusalem Post reported those events. Hamas causes buildings to collapse after firing rocket-propelled grenades on multiple adjacent structures. Additionally, a further three soldiers were killed in a separate attack by Palestinian fighters on a tank in southern Gaza. So that brings us to 24 Israeli soldiers killed on a single day, which is a real blow to Israel at a time when domestic support for the war is starting to wane. It brings the total number of soldiers lost in the war to at least 217. And because Israel has conscription, those losses are being felt right across civil society. Remember, Reservists are not professional soldiers. They are taking the call up after coming from communities, workplaces, and families in which they are embedded. Andreas Krieg is Associate Professor of Security Studies at King's College London. He explained all of that to Al Jazeera regarding the impact of these deaths. Unfortunately, so far, the Israeli public has somewhat been shielded from the real cost of this war. I mean, the burden of of warfare, the operation burden, has been shifted by the Israeli military onto the civilian population in Gaza. And what we see now is that as the Israelis are operating in the rear, as this war is kind of coming to a stalemate, it seems that the Israeli armed forces are now extremely vulnerable also for targeting. And it also shows that Hamas has not been uh, defeated and the cost of war are still there and they're likely going to rise and the Israeli public will be ever more exposed to these costs of war. Uh, and a single incident such as this in a fairly small country like Israel will have quite a lot of impact on the uh, on the uh, collective psyche of Israelis and put pressure on the government to bring this war to an end and potentially accelerate negotiations. That acceleration may happen, but it hasn't happened yet. In response to the killings, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made this bullish statement. Yesterday, we experienced one of the most difficult days since the outbreak of the war. The IDF has launched an investigation into the disaster. We must learn the necessary lessons and do everything to preserve the lives of our soldiers. In the name of our heroes, for the sake of our lives, we will not stop fighting until absolute victory. 
to save lives, we've got to lose 24 soldiers in one day, apparently. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu may be calling for, quote, absolute victory in Gaza, but whether that victory in Israel's own terms can be achieved appears to be increasingly unlikely. Here's Andres Krieg again. Does this goal of absolute victory still make sense from a military standpoint? No, absolutely not. I mean, I've, say, I've been saying this for over three months. There is no military solution to this issue and to this conflict. The root cause is a political one. It's a counterinsurgency operation. It has to be seen as such. If they want to defeat Hamas, they need to defeat the movement. They need to do this politically. They need to offer something in return to the Palestinians collectively, not just to Hamas. And from a military point of view, there's literally nothing that can be done. Um, we've seen the complete uh, annihilation of the physical infrastructure of Gaza, and still Hamas is fighting. Still, Hamas has the capability to fire rockets, even if somewhat in a, in a restrained way. Uh, but we see Hamas operatives still running around Gaza, still being able to avoid open firefights, appearing and disappearing, shooting from the rear, uh, creating ambushes, and as we've seen in that incident overnight, uh, being able to target Israeli soldiers with impunity and then disappearing again. What we also know from the Israelis is that for the most part, Hamas fighters are avoiding open battles and open firefights, even in the urban environment. Uh, and hence why Israelis have the Israeli numbers of killed uh, soldiers have been, have been fairly low, while the number of wounded soldiers, also severely wounded soldiers, has been quite high because what we see is that Israeli soldiers are being attacked from the rear in ambushes, booby traps. Um, and, and this situation is likely going to continue with hundreds of miles of tunnel systems that the Israeli military so far has been unable to destroy and will most likely never be able to destroy. And hence, they're in this kind of situation in an unwinnable war uh, where they can't get out of. Now, Krieg is absolutely right there about the number of injured Israeli soldiers. In December, the Times of Israel reported this. Israel's rehabilitation hospitals were unprepared for the number of wounded soldiers being admitted. According to an IDF report also in December, over 6,000 members of the Israeli security forces had been injured since the war began, and over 2,000 were classified as suffering permanent disabilities as a result. The true figures are likely to be higher. Again, remember, these are likely to be reservists. Ash, over 200 dead for a conflict which is less than four months old. That should have, that should have political repercussions for Netanyahu, shouldn't it? Well, I think one of the things that you've got to understand is that for Netanyahu, there really is no upside. He's having to manage quite a few downsides. One downside is as the war continues, you have more Israeli casualties. That creates pressure. You also have the ongoing issue of the hostages not being released without some kind of negotiated settlement, the negotiation of a permanent ceasefire. And you've got the hostages' families, friends and loved ones in Israel applying a degree of political pressure to Netanyahu's government. But if Netanyahu were to negotiate a more permanent ceasefire, if he were to bring an end to this war, his political career may well be over. One, he's having to deal with the extreme unpopularity of his Supreme Court reforms. And two, October 7th was seen as very much his security fuck up. 
The thing that he always promised Israelis was that there'd be no Palestinian state and that he would keep their security interests as the very, very top priority. Now, as me and you have discussed many times on the show before, there is an inherent contradiction there. You cannot keep Israeli civilians safe while denying Palestinians their political rights, their rights to self-determination and their rights to statehood. You simply can't do both those things at once. And I think that that um, broke down uh, spectacularly and, and irretrievably on October the 7th. But again, I think that could very much, it could spell the end of Netanyahu. So yes, casualty figures like the ones we've seen today of 24 Israeli soldiers being killed in a single day, that does create a pressure for Benjamin Netanyahu. But I don't think that it creates more pressure than his fear that it would be the end of his premiership should the war in Gaza end. And there's one thing that I want to um, uh, just speak on very, very briefly, and it's this notion of a total victory in Gaza. Now, this is something that you hear an awful lot within the British media as well, uh, this idea that a realizable military objective is the destruction of Hamas in Gaza, the total surrender of Hamas in Gaza. If there's one thing that we learn from the study of history, it's that you pretty much cannot end a native insurgency through military means unless you are willing to carry out a genocide or an ethnic cleansing. Right? You just simply can't do it. It's like breaking a piece of glass. All you do is you create more pieces because this is a direct consequence of the aforementioned blockade, siege, occupation, conditions of apartheid, the wholesale denial of political rights, self-determination and sovereignty for the Palestinians. Without that context, you don't get Hamas. You simply don't get Hamas. Um, and if you were living in Gaza, and don't forget, many Hamas fighters are themselves orphans of previous wars on Gaza. If now you're a young person growing up in Gaza, highly likely that people you know will have been killed, highly likely that people you know will have been permanently maimed and mutilated. You've seen the destruction of education facilities, healthcare facilities, power, communications, transport infrastructure. You have been left out in the cold without medicine, without food or adequate water. Do you think that's going to make you more or less likely to want to enact acts of violence against Israel, its military, and indeed its civilians? Not justifying, simply saying, what do you think is realistically more likely? Because if you create circumstances where people have nothing to lose, and in Gaza, they have had nothing to lose apart from their lives. There's no economic opportunities. Uh, the Israeli blockade had an absolute stranglehold on Gaza's economic development. That only strengthened Hamas's hands rather than weakened it. And I think that we're seeing the exact same thing now. You're seeing support for Hamas increase across the West Bank occupied territories. And I don't think that this will have broken down the support for Hamas in Gaza, because Israel's indiscriminate campaign of bombing, its war crimes against the Palestinian people, including the war crimes of forcible transfer, and in my view, genocidal acts and ethnic cleansing, 
all you're doing is making violence against the Israeli state and Israeli civilians inevitable in the future. Absolutely inevitable. I think it's important to say that. I don't think it's condoning anything. You know, this, this war is making Israel less safe. This war, which has seen more than 200 Israeli soldiers die so far, thousands of casualties, we, we, we think 2,000 life-changing um, injuries, is making Israel less safe. It's having a massive implication for implications rather for, for global trade. It means that the US and the UK are now getting embroiled in a war with Yemen. And it is a war, by the way, if you keep on doing it. Who wins out of this? Who's winning? Not the Gazans, not Israelis, certainly not the IDF, not the Yemenis. Who's winning? Benjamin Netanyahu and his government. Yeah, apparently the entire, the entire world, apparently, has to dance to their tune. And what you're saying there, Ash, really makes me think, you know, there was an Instagram video, a video on Instagram rather, of a man holding up his dead newborn child. And of course, millions of people are seeing these images every day. No matter what the extremists say in this country's media or in Westminster, and they are extremists, no matter what they say, if you see something in the palm of your hand, you, you can't deny it, you can't not see it. He was holding up his newborn child, it was dead. And he said, was this Hamas? Was this Hamas? Of course it wasn't. But we've had thousands of children die since October the 7th. Palestinian children have died. And again, you can look at the sort of more puerile comments on social media. They're more wisdom than a thousand and one front pages in our country's newspapers. Uh, one of them was this. If you destroy Hamas, but you kill thousands of children, Surely you're creating Hamas too. A throwaway, trivializing comment, perhaps, but I think it's actually pretty damn accurate. Uh, but apparently, random people on Instagram and TikTok have more, have more wisdom and sagacity than the people around this country. They do, by the way. Uh, the killing of 24 Israeli soldiers may be the worst day for Israel since the war began, but it happened just the day after the number of Palestinians killed in Gaza passed more than 25,000. 25,000. Now, we've talked a lot on this show about how the British media draws a distinction between Israeli lives and Palestinian lives, valuing one more highly than the other. And nowhere was that clearer than on Sky News this morning when this happened. Alistair joining us, now biggest death toll since the start of this war. Alistair, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, understandably, of course, uh, the focus has largely been on the extremely high death toll amongst Palestinians in Gaza, over 25,000 now and 190 killed in the last 24 hours. The biggest death toll since the start of this war. That's only if you don't include the Palestinians who've been killed. Perhaps that was just a slip on Bali's part, but it was a telling one that was rightly corrected. And it came on a day when Israel ramped up its hostilities against the city of Khan Yunus in the south of the Gaza Strip. A Reuters reports that Israeli forces have stormed a hospital in Khan Yunus as Israel hit the city with the bloodiest fighting of the year so far. This was Khan Yunus last night. A resident said the bombardment from air, land and sea was the most intense around Khan Yunus since the war began in October. And in its wake, displaced Palestinians who fled to the city from the north of the Strip have begun to move en masse towards Rafah in the hope of finding safety. And most of Gaza's 2.3 million Palestinians are now penned into Rafah and surrounding towns, living in tents and makeshift shelters. Before the war, around 200,000 people lived in the area. I should say, 
many people, including myself, think the plan here is for Palestinians to be en masse ejected into Sinai through the Rafah crossing into Egypt. And this looks pretty much like what you'd have to do to get to that outcome. Uh, the Israeli army now says it has encircled Khan Yunus. And images from the New York Times show the extent of the destruction the IDF has left behind. In mid-November of last year, Khan Yunus was a fairly large developed area consisting of a large number of buildings, streets, and other civilian architecture. Uh, that was before the second phase of Israel's ground operation began in the south of the Strip. Uh, less than a month later, the IDF's bombs and bulldozers had flattened and cleared a large area to the east of the center of Khan Yunis. And now, as of just three days ago, huge areas have been left almost entirely cleared of buildings and other infrastructure. What were once roads are now blurry, indistinct streaks in the dirt. In the midst of the escalation, Israel has reportedly been pushing for a deal with Hamas. Axios report that the deal offers a two-month pause to fighting in Gaza in exchange for the release of all hostages. More than 130 Israeli hostages are still being held in Gaza. According to officials who spoke to Axios, the proposed deal would see them being released over several phases. The first phase would see the release of women and men over the age of 60, as well as hostages in a critical condition. And later phases would involve the release of female soldiers, men under the age of 60 years old who are not service personnel, and finally, male soldiers and the bodies of hostages who've died. In exchange, a number of Palestinian prisoners would be agreed for release. Uh, that would be a certain ratio of Palestinians to Israelis, which isn't really specified. And Israel has also said it would be prepared to move its armed forces out of main population centers to allow displaced Gazans to return. But it's also been clear that it would not mean an end to the war and will not allow the release of all 6,000 Palestinian prisoners presently in Israeli prisons. Ash, purely from an objective uh, standpoint, this doesn't seem like a very smart deal for Hamas because basically they're being asked to give away all of their leverage, which are the hostages, and after two months, the war could continue and people could be displaced and killed again. Well, quite rightly, if you're looking at it from Hamas's perspective, what they would want to secure is a release of Palestinian prisoners from Israeli military detention and a permanent ceasefire. And without the hostages, they really have no leverage whatsoever. There isn't any indication that there'll be a political negotiation about the status of Gaza and the occupied Palestinian territories after any such ceasefire. So really a permanent ceasefire is all you've got to go on. I think, however, um, again, looking at it from the Israeli government perspective, I think they've written off the hostages. They've absolutely written off the hostages. The existence of the hostages in Gaza provide a morally defensible reason to still be in Gaza. And if you secure the release of all the hostages and you no longer have, you know, one of the one of the justifications for their total war on Gaza, it makes it more difficult to maintain the kind of military presence that they've had since October. And I think that the goal of the Israeli state is to expand its territory, to 
keep parts of Gaza under permanent military occupation with the hopes of annexing significant portions of the territory. And actually, if you secure the release of all of the hostages in exchange for, you know, what I would consider a fairly just outcome, like a permanent ceasefire, you lose part of your your pretext for doing that. So I don't think that Israel wants the release of all of its hostages because then it would have to significantly significantly alter its military presence in Gaza. Yeah, that's very well said, Ash. Um, just for context as well, recent comments from Netanyahu himself has been that there is no two-state solution, quite clear. And I should add, a greater Israel wouldn't just be the West Bank and Gaza, but potentially parts of Lebanon as well. Again, people are openly regretting the withdrawal of the idea from Lebanon uh, and quickly on this, there's one comment before we go to the next story. Oliver Camp with five pounds. Is Israel starting to resemble the latter or last days of Rhodesia? No, I think is the answer. Um, Israel has a very high birth rate. It has lots of um, migrant inflows. Of course, Rhodesia at the end was people were leaving because it was clearly not a white Rhodesia was clearly a thing of the past. Um, proportionally, there was growing smaller and smaller each year as a part of the population. Uh, so I don't think so, no. And also, of course, Israel enjoys the support of the United States. Simple as that. Not just militarily, but also economically. Without the US, Israel doesn't last a year, right? This is a country that doesn't even have clean drinking water, has desalination plants. Um, so it's a bit of a paper tiger without the US, but with the US, I don't think it's comparable to Rhodesia. Uh, next story. It's been nonstop bad news for the British economy over the last 18 months, you might have noticed. No growth, high inflation, interest rate rises, and a cost of living crisis. However, it now seems there is some rare good news. The government has more money on its hands than it's expected, partly because interest rates on government debts have gone down. Data from the Office for National Statistics shows that the deficit for December 2023 was £7.8 billion. That's more than £6 billion lower than the Office for Budget Responsibility had forecast and is the lowest level of borrowing in December since before the pandemic. This graphic from the ONS shows the extent of the drop. The figure for December last year is considerably lower than December in the previous three years, as you can see, and there's been a downward trend for the last six months. Elsewhere, the Deputy Chief UK Economist at Capital Economics said the OBR's full-year borrowing forecast had undershot by £5 billion. So it looks like there's definitely room for manoeuvre. But where has this come from? Well, interest payments on the national debt are lower than expected, for one thing, with long-dated gilt yields having fallen since November. It's a bit like you saving money because all of a sudden the interest charged on your mortgage and your credit cards is somewhat lower than you had uh, forecast. Here's where it gets really interesting, however. Because the ONS says public debt was 97.7% of GDP in December, almost the size of the UK economy. And that represented an increase of almost 2% compared with 12 months earlier. So the deficit is falling, although we still have a deficit, we're still spending more than we bring in, but public debt is rising. Yet the Tories want tax cuts. All while councils go bankrupt, HS2 doesn't go past Birmingham, and infrastructure spending continues to lag the rest of Europe. We won't deal with any of that, but we'll offer you tax cuts. Now, what this reveals is that the austerity project 
after 2010, by the way, when debt to GDP was 60%, not 97.7%, was a giant con job. And worst of all, the media went along with it. For more on this, here's Dominic Caddick. He's an economist with the New Economics Foundation. The Conservatives have these rules on their borrowing and their debt, which you know, they themselves make up, which limit you know, how much we can borrow and how much you know, debt the government can have. In the end, that's just leading us to make decisions where we're not meeting our climate targets, we're letting our public services crumble, NHS waiting lists are up, and you know, the alternative is there public investment free government spending and we're not doing it because we're sort of you know addicted to this austerity idea any sort of extra space they're using to make you know tax cuts because that's the economy they believe in they believe in one where cutting taxes for the richest reducing you know, the quality of public services that's the bit they believe in i don't think they believe in you know the success of austerity because it hasn't been a success and, you know there's so much evidence around that but what they do believe in is like a smaller state and lower taxes. Even the IMF is saying now that austerity does not, you know, lower uh, government's debt to GDP in, in the long term. It actually increases it because basically with austerity, you, you sort of stranglehold um, any sort of growth in the economy. And therefore, you know, GDP is part of debt to GDP. And that, you know, ratio just starts increasing instead. So I think... You know, we're left in this position where governments are left with even less resources and a lower quality sort of base of public services. And that's sort of just leading to a very you know, stagnant economy in general. This is so revealing for me in so many ways. And I think it's quite concerning, frankly, that the Tories still haven't sussed out how badly they screw things up over the last 14 years. So to be clear, if you have low state investment in the economy and you have low consumer demand, because of course wages have been lagging behind inflation for a couple of years, most of the last 15 years, you have low demand in both the public and private sector, you're going to have zero low growth or maybe even a recession. Okay? So the last thing you want to do when you've got low consumer demand is actually to have less state spending, less investment. What you should do is invest in assets which will, which will give you a return. You know, they'll, they'll generate returns over a long time. Now, what I find so strange is that the Tories understand that logic for individuals. They'll say, makes sense as an individual, buy assets which will make a return for you. That's really clever. We like people like that. But they don't understand the same logic applies to states. That a state can create assets which will generate revenues from public housing, to energy infrastructure, to high-speed rail, all manner of things which make money, and they make. We know they make money, by the way, because uh, asset managers and you know people in finance want to get a piece of the pie. That's why privatise and outsource so much because they make money, so they can get it on the individual level, but not not at the level of the state. Ash, it's amazing that after fourteen years, the Tories still don't get why this is such a stupid strategy, or maybe they do. I was just reflecting on how little has changed since Navarra Media was founded in 2011, because I knew you back then. And I, I remember some of the things that you were talking about. You're talking about this idea of zombie neoliberalism. So even though the financial crisis had happened in 2008, caused initially by the subprime mortgage crisis, there was the sense of there being no alternative. 
And that was actually quite crazy. You had the total collapse of the economic system all around our ears. And yet there was no sense politically that there would be a different way of doing things. So neoliberalism, the ideology, the the view of political economy, it was like a zombie that lurched on without its master. So it wasn't delivering any of the things that it said it would. It had no real reason for existence, but it just carried on dragging its corpse, you know, across the ground of the world's, you know, trading floors. Now, you had some, I think, you know, expressions of a desire for something different, Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, they were ultimately crushed by the political establishment in their relative countries. And, and all you're left with, I think, again, is that sort of zombie neoliberalism. There's only one way to do things, and that's allow the rich to get richer, much richer. Uh, I read a, a tweet from uh, Mar Marianne Mazzucato today saying that the workers' share of global income is almost at an all-time low. So this is something which is much bigger than the UK. And we're expecting different results, except I don't think anyone really is expecting different results anymore. I think that you're right to say that not even the Conservative Party really think that this is going to improve conditions for anybody. It's certainly not going to improve uh, the conditions of public services. It's certainly not going to deal with the runaway inequality that we have. It's certainly not going to deal with the housing crisis, which is an expression of uh, a neoliberal economy where you treat things which should be for social good, which should be public assets like housing. You treat them instead as vehicles for investment. The idea is you push the prices of those assets up so that it inflates the value of people's property portfolios. And it means that, you know, regular people are you know bleeding in terms of rent and can't can't own a house even if they wanted to um i don't think that anyone thinks that that's the best way to run a society i think the conservative party think it's the best way to run a party rishi sunak is a very very weak prime minister he's a very very weak leader of the conservative party it's not a comfortable place to be in where his most close political allies jeremy hunt David Cameron are certainly not from his wing of the party. He was a sort of, um, you know, Brexity technocrat. He's now being surrounded by uh, Remaini technocrats, and that's because you know the more populist, headbanging wing of his party want to chuck him out a window. But they're also worried about the timing of that because that would trigger a general election in which they'd all lose their seats. So it's a very fragile, precarious place for Rishi Sunak. And in terms of party management. One of the things that he can do is talk about tax cuts for the rich. Tax cuts always disproportionately benefit the rich. So even if you're uh, increasing the tax-free allowance, that's something that's going to benefit more well-off households a lot faster and a lot more than it will benefit the poor-off households. I'm not saying that's a reason not to do it. I'm just saying that's something which always benefits the rich. Benefits the rich a hell of a lot more than things like increasing benefits payments or lifting living wage or you know, implementing uh, rent caps and rent freezes. Um, and it's it's because Rishi Sunak needs to keep his party together. It's not because it's going to win over any new voters. Polling consistently shows that a majority of conservative voters in this country want a wealth tax. It is simply about keeping his party together. Yeah, so well put. I mean, walk down a high street. I say this every day, don't I? I said to my wife, she's there and talk about high streets. Walk down a high street, go into a business and say, 
would you like to see a 5% VAT cut? They would say, yes, please, my God. It might be the difference between us being able to operate or not. But nobody nobody talks about that. And we're going to see an income tax cut, I think, because like you say, um, it's politically sellable to the entire electorate, but it actually benefits the wealthiest the most. On this, finally, you know, the Tories love to say debt is bad, public debt's bad, debt's bad, don't be in debt. But they tell everybody to get on the property ladder, get a mortgage. A mortgage is debt. You get the debt to access something which is useful for you in the long term and actually is in your rational self-interest. It's cheaper than renting. It's expensive to be poor, as Ash herself has so uh, brilliantly articulated. So on the one hand, debt's bad, terrible, don't get debt. But actually, if you want to start a business or mergers and acquisitions or in major corporate takeovers, debt's good. Debt's how you make profit. Debt's how you generate growth. So they believe it on one end, but not on the other. Why? Because that belief allows them, as Ash says, to uh, push wealth up, um, to destroy the middle class. We don't even need to talk about the working class, the middle class. People on 50 grand a year, if you look at changes in tax revenues over the last 15 years, how, how tax is in, in, impacting who and where, their kids go to university, they're paying more on VAT, um, they don't tax dodge like the ultra-rich, they're the ones being hammered. And again, they would say, we're pro-business, go to a high street. The businesses are closing, my friends. Asset managers and multinationals and the financial service industry is not business. Consultants, random consultants on LinkedIn aren't business, okay? They're not the people that keeps this country ticking over. Um, the biggest worry of all is, of course, that Labour agrees with lots of this stuff. Not as fanatically, but they're certainly not providing an alternative. A last story. There's been lots of debates about Israel's war in Gaza, Yemen's actions in the Red Sea, and what this all means for global logistics. Could it mean massive disruptions to trade flows and higher inflation, with the actions of the Houthis in particular a challenge to economic globalization? And that's the argument made by the US and UK, who've launched multiple airstrikes on Yemen for precisely that reason. But responding to the implications of the Houthi attacks on Israeli ships in the Red Sea, academic and journalist Miriam Francois had this to say. There are many who are saying that, frankly, the Biden administration should have acted sooner and faster, that hundreds of billions of dollars uh, has been put at risk because the Houthis have held uh, this area in the Red Sea um, at ransom. Sorry, so just let me get this straight, Yelda. So we are bombing the poorest, one of the poorest countries in the world that has been under a humanitarian blockade. There has been famine. These people have been decimated. And we are bombing them because a couple of guys in dinghies in support for the Palestinians who are having a genocide committed against them. They're objecting to that and we're bombing them. Come on now. I mean, well, this it, is just an insane world for us to even think. I'm so sorry your Amazon packages are delayed. I really am. Like, I wish mine came on time. But, you know, genocide, guys, genocide. There are two mothers a day dying in Gaza right now. It's 109 days into a conflict in which a humanitarian crisis has been declared to the world day by in, the way, day out. By the way, I'm sorry your Amazon packages have been delayed. Memorable line, uh, though the implications of shipping lanes in West Asia being closed are a little bit uh, bigger than that. Ash, are Britain and the US bombing a country so our prime deliveries arrive on time? I think that was very pithily put by Miriam Francois. And the element of truth in what she's saying is that when you compare what the Houthis are doing to what 
Israel is doing to the people of Gaza. There is absolutely no sense of moral equivalence between these things, let alone a sense that, you know, what the Houthis are doing is so bad and so awful that that requires our direct military intervention when our state can't even bring itself to back calls for a permanent ceasefire in Israel and Gaza. So that's where I think she's right. Where I think she's wrong is to reduce it simply to the matter of just-in-time deliveries. One, just-in-time deliveries are the basis of our retail economy. So it's not just about convenience. It's also about prices in the shops. That's something which really does matter to people. And the second thing, of course, is energy, right? Thinking about transporting you know, natural gas, thinking about transporting oil. We've been witnesses to what happens when you have an energy-related inflationary shock here in Europe. And if you have disruption to Red Sea shipping, that's very much something that can happen again. Now, that's not to say that what this automatically adds up to is a moral case for bombing Yemen. I think what this adds up to is a moral, a geoeconomic, and a domestic political case for pressuring Israel, using military aid to do it, by putting that on the table and saying you're not going to get any more, to to negotiate a permanent ceasefire in Israel and uh, it's permanent ceasefire in Gaza. The reason why I put it like that is that Israel don't give a shit if they destabilize the Middle East. That's actually very good for them, right? Because it keeps America and to a lesser extent Britain embroiled in supporting the Israeli government and the Israeli army, right? So that's actually it's actually quite good for them. And that kind of regional instability is really bad for everyone else. It's bad for us, the British people, puts us at greater risk of terrorism, uh, you know, inflationary price rises. It's only really good for our military industrial complex because they get to sell more weapons, right? That's kind of it. Um, so I don't think that you need to minimize the impact of Houthi disruption to Red Sea shipping to say that morally, it's not an equivalent to what Israel is doing to Gaza, or even you don't need to minimize it to say you think that it's justified, right? I think that's a perfectly legitimate argument to make. Yeah, the, the who the who benefits question is uh, so intriguing. I saw somebody on Twitter that an American say, it's time to take back the Hagia Sophia and make it into a, a cathedral. It's obviously presently a mosque. There are some right-wing Americans who are just addicted to creating failed states and sending millions of refugees to Europe. And I cannot quite understand why even European conservatives want to be a part of that. I can't get my head around it. Maybe they're really smart and they know something I don't. Um, anyway, back to Miriam Francois. She went on to say this. There are many who are Yemen watchers who, are, who monitor and follow the Houthis who say this is doing wonders for their branding, actually, mm -hmm. that it isn't just the Palestinian cause that they're focused on. So call a ceasefire now and end the positive branding. If you want to stop the Houthis doing what they're doing, then call a ceasefire right now. Do you genuinely believe right that now. the Houthis would, would stop 
doing what they're doing. If they have literally said that that's why they're doing what they're doing. They have not previously blocked those routes for any other reason except this one. So yes, I do. And I also think the West needs to start to understand that you can't just go around playing cowboys in the world. There are consequences to your actions. You cannot just go around bombing people's countries, ignoring international law and expect no repercussions. For every cause, there is a consequence. And just because you don't like a couple of guys trying to resist I mean, these the fact are that this is now prescribed terrorists. Uh, sure, the according to Western governments, well, they are also according to the yeah. People, because yeah, which is the Saudi-backed government, yeah. which is essentially our. People. But but yeah. the Yemenis who live, uh, you know, under Houthi rule, talk mm -hmm. about the fact that this group continues to terrorize them as well. Yeah, that's it. I am no fan of the Houthis, apart from when they're blockading in favor of a ceasefire, which should have been called a long time ago. This is crazy journalism for me from Yalda Hakim. She's saying the Houthis are a prescribed organization, including by the Yemeni people. They're not prescribed by the Yemeni people. What are you talking about? They're prescribed by the British government in, in this country. They're not prescribed, but how can the Yemeni people prescribe them? The Houthis control land, which includes about 70% of Yemen. They've just been in a war where around 300,000 people have died, yet they've still maintained political control. So they're probably very robust as an organization that you have to have some political consent to be able to do that. You, ha you have to. Sorry, I know it's not popular to say this. We have to choose a different bad guy every other week. I get it. That's how the West operates. But we at Navarra Media are also here to be objective and try and relay facts. You cannot control millions of people in a country with a median age of 18, 19 without some consent, right? Which is, Yelda Hakim doesn't appear to think that. And on the point of they're prescribed, therefore you can't have an opinion on something. This is what really worries me. There's a distinction between actively supporting a terrorist organization, although I think at this point the Houthis are, it's the Yemeni state, I think it's cope to say otherwise. There's a difference between saying that and trying to explain why a certain group of people have done something. That, that basically the inference there is, the implication rather, it's a prescribed organization, you can't have these opinions. I thought, I thought this was a free country with freedom of the press, freedom of speech. You're not inciting anything. Worrying, really worrying. I think we're going there, by the way. I think even trying to explain the, uh, the actions of organizations which are prescribed, which, by the way, includes the YPG. I think the YPG did a great job fighting ISIS in Syria. Sue me. Um, I think we're going in that direction where even if you try and explain these things, you're going to get in trouble. Ash, uh, on this point with regards to the Houthis, very quickly, where do you stand on this? Because it's a, it's, a, it's a fine line we all have to judge as journalists in this game of an organization has been prescribed. Uh, I, I certainly don't support the Houthis. I've never been to Yemen. I can't speak a word of Arabic. But at the same time, it's our job, isn't it? To try and explain to a wider audience why things happen. Because otherwise, millions of people in the West have no idea why anything's happening, why wars happen, why prices go up. Uh, I thought that was the job of journalism, to make clear what is obscured. Absolutely. And some of the facts speak for themselves. The Houthis were subject to a war for about seven years, which killed 300,000 people, which uh, precipitated a humanitarian crisis. And not only were they not ousted from power, it solidified their grip on those parts of Yemen that were in their control. So I think that you've got to say that this is an organization that's here to stay, that they're operating effectively as the Yemeni state, and that when there have been attempts to dislodge the Houthis from power, which have relied on other countries coming in and bombing Yemen, it has not worked. Right? 
Those are just facts. There is absolutely no value judgment being made here by me. These are just very, very simple facts. And the position of the British political, media, and indeed military establishment when faced with those facts is to go, well, why don't Yemenis think we're the goodies and that the Houthis are the baddies when we aided and abetted the Saudi UAE campaign, which killed 300,000 people, and we're bombing them again. Now, when you put it like that, you realize how exceptionally stupid that proposition is, right? Because the Houthis might not be great defenders of human rights in Yemen, but they've got this going for them. They're Yemeni, unlike the Saudis, the UAE, the US, and the UK. And it means that in the eyes of many Yemenis, they will have a hell of a lot more legitimacy than a foreign power, right? That is just a simple statement of facts. Now, I'm sure that there are many people in the media, there are many people who would like to see me reported to prevent for saying this kind of thing. They'd like to say, oh, you know, she's supporting a terrorist organization. I'm absolutely not. There are no value judgments being made here. This is just what journalism is. It is the transmission of facts. And I'll allow the audience to draw their own conclusions. Just don't be surprised when those conclusions are really quite different from the ones that you glean from mainstream media, because it's not based on wishes or aspirations of what I want to be true, right? It's not just a form of journalistic manifesting. It's just a sober look at what's happened in Yemen since 2015. I just want to respond to that, Ash. This is so key for me. You know, the media repeatedly is it's effectively psyoping the public on hugely important issues. Before war in Ukraine, you know, I often heard the refrain, Russia's economy is, you know, it's, it's got a smaller economy than Spain. It can't fight a war against Ukraine. Well, actually, on certain measures, it's a pretty large economy. It's about the same size as Germany on, on GDP, PPP, a certain measure. But you, you can't say, oh, why are you... Why are you a cheerleader for Putin. Well, we're just discussing their capacity to fight a war or not. You want to be right about that, surely. Or in Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban are finished. Well, actually, no, the Taliban command significant support in, in Afghanistan. And actually, the government, Western-backed government there, is, um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's built on cards. It doesn't exist. It's like a matchstick house. It'll collapse as soon as we leave. Oh, why are you a cheerleader for the Taliban? And so repeatedly, we get these geopolitical events, Afghanistan, Russia, there'll be many more, by the way, where the public in this country, the US, across Europe, they're gazumped because nobody in the media actually try, tries to relay facts. But like you say, they relay what they would like to believe. They relay what would like to be true. Okay, let's see how that goes. By the way, the UK came bottom in a recent league table for trust in the media, precisely for stuff like this. Ash, I could go on all night, um, but I can't. Thanks for joining me. It has been lovely to spend this time with you as ever, Aaron. I'm loving your dad era. Absolutely loving it. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm loving it too. Uh, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. The show will be back tomorrow at 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.